Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the greatest monuments, impressive buildings and superstructures such as the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Colossus of Rhodes or the Lighthouse of Alexandria were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. More recently, the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal in India and even the London sewage system have been hailed as more modern wonders. Other magnificent sevens recognise naturally occurring phenomena such as the Grand Canyon in America or the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast and the guest I'm asking today is the journalist, author, sports and ideas man Matthew Said. For a series of podcasts on Radio 5 Live, Matthew was known as the Ping Pong Guy, a modest reference to his impressive career as a table tennis player, which, which saw him win any number of English and Commonwealth titles, as well as competing in the Barcelona and Sydney Olympics for Team GB. But there's much more to him than that, much more to him than table tennis, ping pong or whiff-waff. A first-class graduate of Balegill, Oxford, he's been writing regularly for The Times and The Sunday Times for 20 years or so, He's published half a dozen books and heads up his own consultancy, imaginatively called Matthew Syed Consulting. <laughs> now, Matthew, welcome. I don't normally do this, but I think I'm going to start by just establishing what your seven wonders are, because there's such an intriguing list that I think that would help us uh, uh, to know from the beginning. So you've gone with Rubber Soul, which I'm assuming is the Beatles album, Apple Screensaver, I'll discover why you've selected that, Trust or Trustworthiness, Inspector Morse, Waldorf Salad, Optimism, and I've got this done as Birdlip Pass. I suppose that's Birdlip Bypass, is it? Uh, it is. In, it is. Okay. So, I mean, there's a couple of um, abstract concepts and one or two <laughs> things that people might uh, go, oh, yeah, I like that. And others, you know, what the heck's that doing in there? So, so, um, so as I said, an intriguing list. So, shall we start with Rubber Soul? Uh, an album uh, recorded and sent out to the world by the Beatles before you were born, Matthew. Indeed, indeed. And look, thank you for that introduction, Clive. I must say, I, uh, it's horrible for people to meet those who admire them a bit too much. So I should, I should say, I'm slightly awestruck here. You, the request to come on this podcast, Clive, came to me while I was in the middle of watching a whole series of YouTube videos of, of Clive Anderson Talks Back, which I think is one of the greatest television programs ever made. Annoyingly, the, the person who posted these has now withdrawn them. There must have been some copyright issue. But I remember getting the request and said, oh, my goodness, this is fantastic. But that was such a kind introduction. Not, normally, in, in Clive Anderson Talks Back, they're 
there's a barbed critique, but that was so effusive. I'm slightly stunned. I don't know where to start. Yes, I had some very strange ideas in those days. I used to do a barbed <laughs> introduction. There was one uh, quite well-known comedian who refused to come on, having heard <laughs> my introduction to him until he was uh, persuaded. But uh, but there it is. Um, I'm. I think it's necessary to just you know say who people are. And, I, and if I if I would have put a barb on it, I'd say, look, there's you with a first class degree in PPE, which is the classic degree that people right. go to Oxford for in order to become prime minister. So why aren't you prime minister yet, Matthew? It's pathetic. It's pathetic. You know, I, I did stand. I did stand, Clive, for, for Parliament in 2001 yes. when my table tennis career came to sort of a reasonably sudden end after the Olympic Games in Sydney. I realised that ping pong, which had dominated my life, trying yeah. to overtake Christophe Legout of France and, and to hit the ping pong ball this slightly more yeah. effectively, was coming to it. So I, I thought politics, that's what I want to do. That's why I, I studied PPE. Um, and uh, I lost in, in, that, in that election. It was a safe conservative seat. John Redwood, do you remember him? John uh, Redwood, yes, yes uh, I interviewed him on uh, on the TV programs you're talking about. It's, you uh, did, you did indeed. No, look, you stood for Labour <laughs> and in a safe Conservative seat. You do that's what you do first. That's you know, right, everybody exactly. has to do that. Where's Where's the next seat? Where's the yeah, safe but, one? I don't know. I don't know where safe Labour is now, but let's say well, quite, somewhere but, uh, in, somewhere not in a crumbled red wall. But there's quite a few. Why aren't you there? Well, I did. I did think of of standing again, but I was told that in order to stand, I needed to become a member of a trade union, which is fine. I didn't mind that at all. I became the, a member of the GMB. But then yeah. I was I was I was told in in terms that in order to get a seat, I had to pretend that my views were a very long way to the left of where they actually are. And I suppose it was it was that experience of realizing that that I'd have to say a lot of things that I didn't quite believe. And I mean, but then they all did that. If you look at Tony Blair's interview before his interviews before he stood in '83, I think it was in an unwinnable seat in that that Michael Foot led Labour defeat. Yes. Um, you do have to compromise quite a lot. I'm not. I'm not saying that I'm. I have a high integrity, by the way. But it was. <laughs> well, that's the reality of that's inherent in party politics. You've got to conform to, roughly speaking, with the party line at any given time. Otherwise, you're, you're like you're fighting like rats in a sack. So that's that's just part of the job, isn't it? It is indeed, and and I think that in in a certain sense that's fair enough. But the other thing that I think would prevent me doing it now. I, I still do harbour aspirations. I would like to stand, but I'm, I'm 51 now, believe it or not. And uh, it's it's the level of abuse that politicians get these yes. days, which and the digging up of the past, you know, what they call offence archaeology, something you said 20 years ago in an interview, yeah. and, and, and it's used then to demonise your character. Have you, you been know, on when, Twitter when you, for a long time? Have you, you know, I, I've been on Twitter a while. About- Table tennis exactly. players. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I know. I, I think it's a shame. I think uh, I probably won't stand, and my family's very much against it. But uh, I mean, one of the things that struck me—sorry, you're interviewing me—but uh, Clive Anderson talks about the interviews you did. You know, you had Tebbit and uh, and Lawson, and uh, and John Prescott came on, and and other politicians. You know, it was a kind of an affectionate barbing. But I, I, I felt that you were fair-minded in the way you interviewed politicians. I don't think politicians do get a fair crack of the whip these days. And that's partly, of course, because they have, you know, in, in various ways, disgraced themselves as a class. But anyway. Well, let's, let's, yeah, we're, we're straying too much onto the, the warm, nostalgic glow of uh, <laughs> my old TV programmes. But <laughs> Rubber Soul, uh, which yeah. is um, a, 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 certainly a good 
a record uh, released by the uh, Beatles in, was it 1967, was it? Something like that? You say quite a good record. I think that's uh, understating it a little. Clive. I think, I'm sorry, uh, I was correct. It's 1965. It was released, and I, I was no. It's a, it's a good record, but it, it's as is it the best of all their records? Is it the best of all time of anybody's albums? I, I would happily uh, put, you know, some of the other Beatle albums. I think are, are also very good. Revolver, in particular, Sergeant Pepper. But you mentioned in the intro that very kind intro that uh, I'm interested in in issues around performance, performing well. A lot of my books are about uh, how, how individuals and organisations and teams make the most of their their talents. And I just think the Beatles, Clive, are a group. They had no particular social or cultural advantage. They came from relatively um, uh, working class backgrounds. And yet they created art, music of a, I think, innovative kind um and i admire them so much i think that the way that they captured the the times of the 1960s it, it it's just a beautiful that particular album is beautiful but almost everything they produced is beautiful and i think paul mccartney in particular i like all of the members of the beatles of course mm. but paul mccartney in particular i think has retained a great attitude to life i think if i had to pick one person um who I admire more than any other, even above Clive Anderson. I think it would be Paul. I think it'd be Paul yeah. McCartney. Fair enough. So on this album, uh, there's Nowhere Man, A Girl in My Life, Michelle, Marbell, Norwegian Wood. You won't see me. So there are some, you know, definitely some classic tracks on there. And I think in my life, I'd I'd pick out as the outstanding one. It, I remember listening to it with my wife on holiday. It was a band uh, who were covering it. And mm. so many, I mean, the lyrics are great. I, it's a slight dispute over who wrote it, but but I, I think suspect it's John Lennon's Lennon. song, isn't it? Rather than yeah, a yeah, yeah. McCartney song, yeah. Well, but McCartney, there is an interview uh, that he gave where he took, I think, uh, a fair chunk of the credit. And it's one of the very few heavily disputed of the Beatles songs. But uh, some academics did a deep dive into the different uh, Lennon McCartney patterns and they decided it was a, it, I think he's artificial intelligence and decided it was a Lennon song he, he certainly did the, the the main vocal but it's that's that is a beautiful song and I think the Beatles I suspect will be listened to in in a, in a hundred years time and you can't say that of many uh, popular no. music groups well I, I mentioned the point it was it was released uh, five years before you were born or thereabouts um, and I'm you know, if I were to think of my own life and go back five years before me, there's there's just no way that somebody of my age would be enthusing. I mean, there was Frank Sinatra. Probably, if you're a Frank Sinatra fan, you might go back to. But other than that, the the music in the charts is of you know variable quality, and no, and that's the that's a function of that time's music, isn't it? Not just the Beatles. That what come the '60s, building on the late '50s. There's this category of music which has stood the test of time it's interesting that because when you look at science the new science obviously supersedes the old it's more accurate mm. more explanatory but in music it doesn't quite always work like that i was at a concert last night and they were playing mozart's requiem mozart is still revered as one of the greatest composers of all time yes. and i don't think many would say that contemporary composers are better than mozart music is one of those fields very interestingly where people do sometimes i mean with popular music you're right it's often very relative to the particular milieu but 
I do think there are certain groups that are transcendent, and I would put the Beatles um, at the very top of that list. Yes. So, um, but but you pick that particular. I'll just press you just a little bit more. That it, obviously, as a few more albums came came along, they were even more innovative in their songwriting and their structures and the recreation of the album. Uh, so, you Sergeant Pepper obviously is very famous. Basically, even the White Album, um, even Abbey Road. You know, they 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 were all building, building, and then that that very short career that they had as. Uh, people releasing records, singles and albums came to a, a juddering halt as, as a group. Yeah, that's right. And I, I wouldn't fight. I wouldn't die in a ditch to say that Rubber Soul was their best. One of the reasons I picked that particularly is a, a friend of mine called Ian Leslie. He's another nonfiction author. He He joined me for a podcast that I do on Radio 4 called Sideways. And he used a term called the Rubber Soul Paradox, um, or, or the rubber soul theorem. This is his own idea that, that what is distinctive about the Beatles is they took the influences that were circulating at that time. They were very immersed in soul music. And yes. that's where the term rubber soul came from. And they were almost parodying themselves that they were acknowledging that this was in a certain sense derivative. But nevertheless, whilst allowing these influences to percolate through their own repertoire, they nevertheless found a distinctive way of taking it forward. And Leslie argues, I think correctly, that innovation is often like that. You, you take particular ideas that are circulating in that, that era, but you, you filter it through your own special pr prism. Mm. That's not a very good sentence, uh, prism and, and filter, but well, I hope you know what I mean. I, I, I do mean, while we're thinking about the words, you could offer a little bit of queer. Rubber soul is a rather groany kind of pun when when you think about it. In yeah. the same way, the, the, even the name The Beatles with the change of letter is... <laughs> they, they got past that uh, in their later albums. They did. When they just said this was recorded <laughs> at Abbey Road. or, or the... <laughs> Well, look, um, that's, a, that's a good start, if I may say so, to your Seven Wonders. Uh, there's no, no question that somebody of my age, even more than yours, uh, you know, reveres the Beatles. And as you say, uh, you, could, you could make an argument for two, three, four, five other of their albums, but Ru Rubber Soul... Uh, you know, is up there fighting with the best of them. So I uh, perfectly understand that. But then we go on, um, and this is, is more of a puzzle to me, the Apple screensaver. Now, I have to explain this, uh, Clive. The screensaver that I'm talking about is the one that I see on Apple TV. And when you pause a particular program for long enough, the screensaver comes on. And I've got a reasonably big television screen. And the one that really captures me is a drone that starts over St. Catherine's Dock, and you can see the shard in the distance. And then it floats ethereally through London. Mm. And you get an overview of the architecture of this extraordinary city over the shard, over the news building, past Tower Bridge, the walkie-talkie, these new buildings that have sprung up around Liverpool Street. And then it goes down over Waterloo, the London Eye, and then across over the Palace of Westminster, up through St. James's Park. And it finishes more or less hovering over the gardens of Buckingham Palace. Now, I know this is a slightly tangential way using the Apple screensaver. I love walking around London, and I know that one of your previous guests, because this is a brilliant podcast that, that, that I adore, Hugh, uh, Hugh Dennis, Hugh Dennis yes. mentioned standing on Waterloo Bridge and looking out across the vista of London. And I really 
think that we often don't appreciate the extent to which these organically they, they, they cities grow up organically where people come and stay and then more people come and stay and you get this massive expansion of what's sometimes called the collective brain where people are meeting and mingling in the buildings in the streets in the the various hubs and I think it's an incredibly powerful thing. And when you see the juxtaposition in London of old and new, St. Paul's Cathedral next door to a big shiny glass thing where people work in fintech, you get a sense of the grandeur of of uh, of uh, city living, which which I personally love. But also how these particular places become the hubs of of human innovation and ingenuity. There are places in my life, you could say. So the, um, but yeah, it's an interesting uh, way to go in to that via the Apple screensaver. I, I hadn't worked out this is where you were going with this. I wondered, I assumed it was on, on your computer or my computer where there's an Apple screensaver. So what you're really including in your Apple screensaver is drone technology and all the buildings of London um, and um, the capacity to look at all of this. Uh, just while you're waiting for the next uh, TV program to come on. But 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 there is another reason I, I use this as an example, because there's a very good piece of research that the reason that Silicon Valley became the dominant tech space in the world is because they had all of these places, noodle bars, cafes, where the engineers would meet after work and they would share ideas and they would discuss. And there was this massive cross-pollination of ideas that they didn't have in Boston, which had the strongest tech scene at the beginning of the 1960s because all of the firms were geographically isolated along Route 128. So that's what I think I'm trying to get to with the idea of a city. And Steve Jobs, of course, the founder of Apple, when he designed the Pixar building, which has come up with all of these wonderful uh, movies like Toy Story, he tried to replicate city living in the building. Um, he put the lavatories, for what it's worth, in the atrium, which made no real sense because it meant people had to walk a long way to get there. But it meant they were constantly walking past the desks of their colleagues in random and and unpredictable ways and having these serendipitous encounters where they're sharing ideas and coming up with better ideas. So in a funny kind of way, the Apple screensaver itself emerged from the very vista that it tries to portray when going over uh, cities of various kinds. Is that, is, that too, is that too contrived a link? Because like, I can see from your facial expression, it's quizzical. It's slightly <laughs> contemptuous, actually, if <laughs> I may say so. It's not at all contemptuous. No, uh, it is a bit contrived, but you, as, uh, as I, I would expect from you, there's lots of ideas uh, flowing around there. My first question, which is a rather dull one, is... Um, are you concerned, therefore, that we're, how much we're losing at the moment, the last year or two, where people aren't bumping into each other because they're not right. going, going to their own office, let alone bumping into somebody else on the way to the cafe? We're all sitting, as we, you and I are at the moment, uh, we're sitting in our, uh, well, me and my small cupboard, you in what looks like a rather grand uh, room of yours, uh, but we're not <laughs> meeting We because uh, we would have met in a studio and... Uh, and right. perhaps bumped into somebody else. Oh, Matthew, I've got an idea uh, for something along uh, lines—a a new world tour of table tennis tournaments, or so—and then you're off, off we'd have gone. But as it is, we're going to say goodbye and um, you know, not meet anybody else. Exactly, and that—that's why I think a lot of businesses are pivoting more and more to extra working at the office. 
you know, they realize that there's, they've missed a lot from people working at home because you have that kind of formal list of invitees to a Zoom meeting and you're kind of constrained and enveloped in that environment and you're not having the conversations in the elevator and, you know, euphemistically at the water cooler that I think turn out to be of great significance. I'm not saying that we should go back five days a week, but I do think, you know, when you go to to, to Soho or the city, you don't see the people congregating anymore outside and, and meeting different people in different ways. That often is how innovation happens. So I think we have lost a lot. Mm. Well, I certainly agree with you on that. Um, I, I go into the BBC Broadcasting House in London once once a week and to do a programme. And until the, the pandemic, I would bump into well, those, you know, quite open plan offices bumping into all sorts yeah. of people. Now it's it's not a paperless office. It's been a, a, a personless office for, for quite some time. It's just gradually getting back now. But one other point, you obviously this screensaver is a view over London. And I think you use the term organically grown place, which is what... London very much is. So you have lovely bits next to run-down bits, next to things that remarkably still are bomb sites and, and uh, higgledy-piggledyness. Uh, I know I'm expecting to do another uh, one of these podcasts with somebody who's going to have Paris as one of their wonders of the world, which is a very beautiful city, but it's much more laid out uh, in Paris for historical reasons. Uh, do you think there is something in, in London's arrangements, a, a bit like you're referring to the the Silicon Valley compared to Boston that that does lend itself to this organic cross fertilization. Yeah, there, there's a brilliant uh, book by a theoretical physicist called Jeffrey West, uh, mm. British, who who ended up at the Santa Fe Institute, and and his argument is that when cities grow organically, they tend to incubate greater innovation. He calls it uh, slightly pretentiously super lineal scaling, and it works slightly less well in the ones that have been designed by humans, which tend to create more constraints in the way that people can interact in surprising ways. So there is some evidence for that. I mean, I do think that one of the reasons we we might get onto this in the next theme, that the Industrial Revolution happened in Britain, is, is, is partly, partially related to this. This is what we've heard from our customers. And so we've made something new for them. This is the current Apple TV. We are introducing the second generation of Apple TV today, and this is what it looks like. It's a fourth the size. You can hold it in the palm of your hand. I have one here, actually. I mean, look at this. That's it. It's this little tiny box. All right, well, let's move on to the next one. And uh, again, you're obviously going to surprise me. I'm not sure where the Industrial Revolution comes from because your next uh, wonder is trust. And, and you kind of explain that as being trustworthiness. So, so on you go with that. Well, look, like at the risk of boring your listener, I mean, I, I don't want you to worry too much. I mean, this is a slight, this is the most technical of the of the examples I've given. But mm. I've been thinking a lot about this. You mentioned that I studied PPE at university. Which I especially should explain it's politics, philosophy, and right. economics, and it's what all the top part, apart from Boris Johnson, I think, did greats or classics. But all the rest of them, since time out of mind, have all gone to Oxford and all done PPE. Right. And, and the, the E, of course, as you, as you rightly point out, is, is economics. What fascinated me about studying economics at, at Oxford is that the single most important factor 
in economic phenomena wasn't mentioned once. Mm. And that is trust. People won't trade with each other if they don't trust one another, or at the yeah. very least, if they don't trust a judge to impartially enforce the contract in the result of a breach. And mm. you see this distinction between southern and northern Italy. Northern Italy, the Renaissance, quite rapid economic growth, very high levels of trust within the community. Southern Italy, um, very low levels of growth. And there's a, there's a lot of mutual suspicion. People trust their own clan, their own kin, but they don't tend to trust, trust people outside. And this, I think, is the Achilles heel of um, tribal societies. My father uh, hails from Pakistan and India via Persia, deep in his ancestry. And when you have a lot of trust within a tribe, but you don't trust the other tribes, you can't do business, you can't uh, scale up the society. And so I think the secret of the success of the West was building what psychologists call generalized social trust. It's a very interesting story of how this happens. But because economists never think about it, and politicians tend not to think about it, this invisible force field through which societies actually operate effectively, that it's, it's a... And, and the other thing to mention, Clive, is that although trust has grown over the last one and a half thousand years in, in, in Western societies... It has gone into rapid and very um, dangerous reverse. So in the United States, trust in other people has dropped by a half since 1960. Trust in the federal government has dropped from 79% to 20%. Trust in institutions, particularly things like science, has, has, has dropped off a cliff. Congress is now regarded little more highly than cockroaches. This is a catastrophe for for, <laughs> for a society because if you don't trust the... I remember a, a Southern Italian going to America and saying he heard a politician say, you know, an earthquake is coming, you need to go home and tape your windows. And he was amazed to see that his uh, you know, American citizens did what the politician said. He said, if a Southern Italian politician had said that, I would have ignored it. I assumed, I would have assumed that their brother sold tape for a living. Um, and so you can see that when trust begins to decline, it has catastrophic effects on on human society, and and that's why I think uh, trust in the building of social trust is one of the true wonders of the human world. Well, I, I put a word in for the legal system, uh, because, which I I think you were referring to along the way there, because trust in the in the courts and being able to get justice is vital, and that is another big problem I think in America because. Even large corporations now can't contemplate litigation because it's so expensive. Uh, whether you could trust the decision at the end of it is, is almost by the by. So if you're accused of uh, money laundering or uh, or rip ripping off with some computer program, you're, you're almost forced to plead guilty because it's just it's just not worth waiting around for several years and bankrupting yourself to hope to prove that. And I think that is a serious problem with the American legal system, and it may overtake us here as well. I think that's true. And, and with really big multi-million dollar contracts, you would expect to have very carefully drafted agreements and potentially to have to go to law to have them interpreted. What's interesting about a robust rule of law, though, is the, the extent to which people don't need to go to law in order to reach a resolution. People tend to have an understanding. In other words, you don't really need a complete contract, you know, a completely specified explanation of what's being proposed, which is a massive drain on economic activity because you effectively trust each other. And the law is only used as an exception rather than as the rule. And that, that is why tr tr trust, as it were, 
trust is deeper than the the, the legal system in a funny kind of a way. All right. Well, uh, tr- uh, but just just to check before we move on. So trust is obviously very important. Uh, and can you justify calling it a wonder of the world? It's a it's a vital element that makes it a wonder, does it? Well, Clive, ask let me ask you a question. No other animal. So there's lots of obviously lots of different species that we share this planet with. None are able to cooperate on the scale of humans. And the main reason is if you if you if you get a pack of wolves trying to cooperate beyond the pack, so you know they cooperate with a reasonably small group, is that some people will just not do what is in the collective interests of the group. The only animals that do it reasonably well are bees and, and ants, but they share they're basically genetic clones. Humans have managed to do something uniquely in the whole of the animal kingdom, and it is because we've managed to create high levels of general social trust. In other words, when people are prepared to do the right thing and to honour their word, even when it is in their self-interest to break it, that is a, that is a miracle, um, uh, perhaps even more than it is a wonder. But yes, I'm, I'm happy to include it in the list. Well, this has been a very, so far, it's been a very, very fascinating and I would say high-end selection of, uh, <laughs> of wonders. I, I don't want to be rude about a TV programme, uh, but just to say maybe we're taking it down a notch. I don't know. Uh, who knows with where your wonders go? Inspector Morse. So I'm saying TV programme. Inspector Morse is a series of books, but then it became a series of uh, television programmes. Which is it either of those or both of those that make it into your list of wonders? It is It is a TV series. And I have mm. to confess, this is just a straightforward um, love of mine that... Uh, I, I got into Inspector Morse, I would say, about after it had aired the first time on, on ITV. I got into it five or six years later. And I do think John Thor is a is a brilliant actor. And um, I, I, I find it difficult to express just how much my admiration for, for this television program extends. Dur, dur, it was a saviour during lockdown. I watched them again and again. I think it has many, uh, many different layers and uh, if I had to pick one of the, I mean, if there are any Inspector Morse aficionados out there, I think second time around is <laughs> is one of the great one of the great TV programs of all time. Uh, I'm going to so, write so that down uh, with a note to myself. <laughs> I must uh, watch it. Uh, maybe I've seen it and it's passed, you know, out of my mind, which seems scarcely credible. So uh, I must have missed that one. Second time around. Uh, John Thor, sadly, the late uh, John Thor, uh, you know, made the part his own. And uh, I suppose the television has almost, um, you know, taken over from the north. I think it was more TV than there were novels in the first place. Uh, now, of course, you, you're never short of crime dramas on the television to pick from. And there have been many made since then. Have you have you not moved on uh, to any of the, the, the subsequent ones? You, you, you're stuck in in a nice possible way <laughs> on that one there's no reason why you you can't just say that's my favorite and i'm sticking to it but uh, in in what way is it superior to any other procedural or who done it or a police crime drama i i think for me it's the it's the combination of it's a pathos of the central character of yeah. of inspector morse he, i mean much of it's about his friendship with lewis his inability to make a romantic relationship work but there's also great depth to <laughs> something I, I can relate to I should say that but uh, uh, there's there's real there's real uh, depth in in him and and somehow 
I don't think I have. I, th- I thought uh, I don't know if you remember um, Clive Jeremy Brett as as Sherlock Holmes yes, in the Granada yeah. series. I thought that was very very good. Brett Brett's a brilliant actor, but no, I don't think anyone's got. I thought Helen Mirren as DCI Tennyson was good in Prime Suspect, yeah. um, but I, I I would still put Thor. Are you a fan of Morse, Clive? Well, not specially, uh, but I, I I feel guilty saying that uh, to, to undermine. <laughs> I don't want to undermine the the wonder of the whole thing. Um, I. I I generally do enjoy a good crime drama, but I, you, you settle down. You want to, you know, five minutes in. I want to know what the what's the dodgy home life of this, you know, this particular detective because nobody just comes to work and gets on with a the job. They've always got you've got a drinking problem, and and another sort of stereotypical thing he abides by. There's a lot of authors like to imbue their their detectives with. Uh, a hinterland, you know, with an interest in in books or literature or music or or old cars or whatever, and and uh, very rarely are they shows just blunt people who are obsessed with catching villains and uh, don't don't have a remarkable home life. So, but I think that's maybe in the, in the nature of uh, of you, you you get fascinated by the uh, by the the inspector or the the detective. Um, yeah, and um, who, who are they are. Yeah, you're right, and and one of the joys of of Morse is whatever particular piece of classical music, uh, Wagner or or Bach or Schubert that that he's interested in, that becomes the the kind of musical backdrop to the wider drama that plays out, which is, which is another beautiful part of the series. Now, I'm going to be rather clumsily put it this way. I've been thinking about. I must ask you in the course of this conversation about your uh, table tennis career and how it was that uh, that sport. Uh, attracted you and how you became so good at it um but i can't see any particular connection with the <laughs> the wonders we've had so far um and who knows there's optimism coming up i'm i'm out of but why don't i just ask you now why don't I just uh, so you and i've heard you speak about this so i i uh, to an extent i know what the answer is which is always a thing you're supposed to do when you're, you're cross-examining somebody in court you should always know what the answer is before you are but how was it that uh, you became um a champion table tennis player well, for, for for where did you hear me? Was this at the event that we both went to? We did an in, event a few years ago, and yeah, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. So, and uh, I introduced you, and uh, That's right. again, I don't think anybody, I don't think we were focusing on table tennis in the event. It was, it just came into it, and well, look, I'm I'm trying to nudge you into the answer. Yes, that, no, please that, let me let yeah. me answer, but but yeah. let me. So, so I I as you know, uh, I um I grew up in in suburban Reading in on a street called Silverdale Road. Um, where my mum uh, still lives and my and my brother's still there. And for reasons that they can't quite explain, my mum and dad bought a table tennis table and put it in the garage. They had no particular interest in it, but I think my father was keen for us to play a sport. And then when we went to primary school, uh, one of the teachers at that school, Peter Charters, turned out to be the best table tennis coach in Britain. And he had an after-school club that some people went along to. Because we had played a bit of table tennis in the garage, we are already sort of some way down the line in, 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 in developing our talents. And so we looked very good and we joined uh, the after-school club. And then this particular coach nurtured us along with some other people in the catchment area of the school. So by the mid-1980s, Silverdale Road in Reading had more than half of the top players in Britain it was an absolutely ridiculous situation where Silverdale Road was dominating all the tournaments all over the country. And it um, 
And it made me realize that uh, you have a great coach and an opportunity to practice and you have wonderful uh, competition within the local area. It, it can really make a, a, a... So my brother was a national champion. Uh, Karen Whit was Commonwealth champion. Andy Wellman and and uh, Paul Beck and Keith Hodder. It was, you know, I took a BBC film crew down the street and it was like every third house was uh, somebody at least county level at table tennis. Yeah. <laughs> tell me tell me the coach's name again because I didn't write it down the P- time. Peter Charters. Peter Charters. So w- what you needed, and in- indeed everybody else in that street needed, was Peter Charters to be around teaching uh, table tennis. So I suppose that puts our inquiry as to why, you know, why you and all your neighbours or many of your neighbours were so good back to well, why, is, why was Peter Charters so good at being a coach? Was he coached by some some other, uh, you know, you know, what wonder, wonder coach in the past. Did you happen to know that? No, I know. Well, you, you might not be surprised. Did Peter and I are still very, very close friends, and we text each other. He's very old now, but well, in his eighties. Um, and we've talked about this, and I think he was he was a teacher, so he liked imparting knowledge on young people. He loved table tennis, uh, which is important. But I don't think that you can, I can't anyway, come up with a mechanical rule for why he was so good. He he was brilliant at understanding us as individuals. He knew how to inspire each of us in our own way. Most of all, though, he he really cared about our development. You know, he all of the work that he put into table tennis was as a volunteer. He coached every afternoon for two hours. He, he didn't get paid, wasn't expecting payment. Um, so it was that kind of vocational mindset that was so transformative for us. And, you know, you may say, Clive, you might be about to say that, you know, table tennis, what a, what a waste of time. <laughs> but but in a, in a funny kind of way, you're right. I, I sometimes regret having played for so long. But, uh, you know, I played until my you know, it was a dominant part of my life till about 33. Um, but uh, it, it did sort of highlight a deeper truth that you have an inspirational person. Um, it makes a big difference, but I, I can't quite. Un- you know, if you were to ask me to bottle what Charters had, Pete Charters had, and and to give it to other people, I'm not entirely sure I'd be able to come up with the right ingredients. Well, the the only thing I'm certainly not going to diss a table tennis to be a a champion at any sport is 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 great. I mean, it's it's uh, must be very. I'm I'm speaking theoretically in my case, but it must be very satisfying. But I suppose it does beg the question. Supposing he'd been a great coach for lawn tennis. And he had turned you and you know some of the rest of you into great lawn tennis champions. It'd be a different lifestyle being a, a champion. That's much more professional sport. Uh, but you might be you might have made a fortune out of it because I I, th- I think there's more money to be made out of lawn tennis than there is out of table tennis. I'm only guessing. No, you're right. You're right. I, I think it could have been something different, and uh, you know who knows the trajectory of my life might have been might have been transformed. But. Um, in a funny kind of a way, though, I love—I really loved playing table. I don't—I don't regret that the passion was was table tennis. I kind of sometimes think that I maybe played too long. I didn't improve that much between the ages of about twenty-five and thirty-three. I was battling very hard to sustain my world ranking of of twenty or thereabouts. So I could have perhaps retired a bit earlier, but I did enjoy it, and I still. 
I know it sounds odd in, in, in and amongst watching reruns of Inspector Morse. I do go and dip into the international table tennis tournaments that are that are out there on on YouTube. It was it was a wonderful sport. Well, to the non-champion, uh, occasionally, you see if there's somebody you know British doing well in a tournament, we might see a game of table tennis on the television. You think, oh yeah, I know how to play. Oh, what are they doing? It's a it's one of those. <laughs> The speed and the and the way of doing it is just so beyond what the ordinary player, even a reasonably good uh, player in their back garden, uh, could possibly hope to to achieve. It's it just doesn't relate to. I suppose that may be true of all sports, but it's it's certainly very very evident on a TV screen with table tennis. You can't even see the ball uh, as a as a viewer, let alone imagine hitting it back if you're at the other end of the table. Because of his studies, Syed has been neglecting his table tennis. Most leading players practice for six hours a day. Syed has been lucky to manage one hour a week. Secretar is one of France's greatest ever players and manages Le Valois. But he's now 46 and is only playing because one of the regular starters is injured. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your next wonder is a, is another one that uh, it doesn't leap off the page as being an obvious choice for for anybody. Waldorf salad. So this this as you as you may anticipate, Clive is a reference to Faulty Towers, and I I, I mentioned Paul McCartney. Uh, I mentioned Paul McCartney earlier, but John Cleese, I think, is is one of the most remarkable. Uh, people alive today as a creative genius and, and in that particular episode but to be fair in all episodes of faulty towers he takes a very narrow array of ingredients a hotel um a uh, two or three characters who are recurring um and somehow manages to create a program in that case around a waldorf salad ordered by uh, a slightly aggressive uh, American guest and Cleese doesn't have the ingredients to make the Waldorf salad. And it is just a, a but Cleese, of course, in addition to Faulty Towers, which I, I personally think was his greatest uh, comic achievement. You've, you've got Python, you have Fish Called Wanda, uh, Life of Brian. Um, the creative output is quite remarkable, but in all cases, it's assembling it from a, a particular idea that seems a Waldorf salad seems very um, 
lacking in inspiration to make a comic masterpiece, but Cleese somehow manages to do so. I, th- I think he's something else. I'm afraid I hadn't worked out this was going to be about Forty Towers. I, I assume there was some nutritional reason that attracted. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, uh, shall we? Shall I offer Caesar salad as a possible alternative? <laughs> Cap- salad. Cap- Capresse <laughs> salad niçoise. <laughs> oh, but it's uh, it's uh, forty tar. Well, I'm I'm certainly happy to support that. And the, I think the great thing about forty tars, apart from anything else, is the idea because you've got to get these programs commissioned to to get them made. If somebody comes along, so I know we'll set a uh, a sitcom in a rather out of date hotel in Torquay. Uh, to most people, the response from the commissioner will be, well, that's a bit old. Even for the 1970s, that's a bit old-fashioned. That, that's a 1950s idea. People don't go on holiday to Torquay anymore. Set it in set it in somewhere in Spain or something like that. But because it was John Cleese, somebody must have said, oh, okay, we might, you know, he wants to do six in the first series. Fine, let him do it. And then, as you say, he's a an extraordinary performer and uh, the, the, the little mini um, farces, half-hour farces right. is what he basically created. And uh, so and it was a work of genius and they, they restricted themselves to just two, two series. Um, uh, but they're little gems. If I, they, they, probably have that in a Waldorf salad as well, if you want. Little gems. <laughs> <laughs> Celery, apples, walnuts, <laughs> grapes in mayonnaise. But please, um, the other, I, I might just mention this, Clive. I'm, I'm sure you know him. I, I, um, uh, I, I admire him so much. And I, I was in a hotel in um, Bath, and it was a very small hotel. And me and my wife were there, and there were only about four other guests. And we looked across in the um, in the lounge, and and John Cleese is there with 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 his wife, and and Kathy said, Matthew, you've got to go and you've got to go and talk to him. You know his work like the back of your hand. You've got to. Yes. I said, but he must get this all the time. So we're there for we're there for four days, and I studiously avoided interfering with his uh, his relaxing yeah. weekend away. But then, to my absolute delight, um, his daughter tweeted me saying that uh, John had read one of my books. Mm-hmm. And was was very interested in some of the themes, so I reached out on Twitter and said, "Look, uh, you know, we can we can meet and we can discuss this." And I wanted to interview him for a, for a series I was doing mm-hmm. at that time, and he agreed to do so. And we've become very good. We're actually having lunch tomorrow. We've become very very good friends, and oh, it's excellent. one of those rare occasions where, although there is a lot of hero worship, I try and sort of tone it down when we're actually together because it's pretty boring, I think, for him for me to keep going through different plot. Uh, sequences in uh, in faulty towers, um, but he's just an extraordinarily interesting person to spend time with. He's brilliant on politics, on psychology, on he reads extensively, and I often leave our our meetings having learned a lot. And they can inform columns for mm. the Times and Sunday Times and a lot else. He's he's a genuinely exceptional um, and interesting yeah. person. So it's it's uh, it's had a big effect on on my life in other ways too. Uh, I'll, I'll pass on Clive that we talked today. What I'll say that you're not not a not a fan, really. No, <laughs> no, I'm a fan. I have interviewed him a, a couple of times, and uh, uh, more than that, uh, the, the thing I have a memory of him because as a, well, I think I was I don't know if I was a schoolboy exactly, but somewhere around about that time, I went to a recording of Forty Towers, and uh, you know, in the studio, and uh, it was all you know the way of sitcoms, you know, two or three sets 
laid out in front of you and something went wrong uh, halfway through and there was a bit of a delay. So John Cleese came out and said, well, this is, this is because it's a comedy. We don't get enough time to rehearse it. If it was a drama, we'd have five weeks rehearsing this. And he and he basically was Basil Fawlty in his guise <laughs> as the person. And, and of course, as the audience, we love this. This is fantastic. And, I, and we thought and I thought at the time, What's he talking about? He's making a, you know, this is an absolute perfection what he's making here. What does he need five weeks extra for? Why is he complaining about the production values? What is he going on about it? But he was right. And the, as time goes by, when you look, Forty Towers stand up really well as brilliantly written and performed. But the sets are a bit wobbly, right. the structure, but it's yeah. it could be better. And it should have been better. But, of course, nobody knew when they were making, not just that sitcom, but any sitcom. They never think through, we might be still playing these on Dave in um, 30, 40 years' time. Uh, they just think, oh, this will get us through uh, the, the budget of this year and maybe um, a, a repeat in, in, in six months. And that's it. We've we, That's all wasted money. The, uh, the, particularly in Britain, nobody thought that through american sitcoms are often filmed with film values uh, attached to them so i love lucy you can watch the production values are as good now as they were 1950 something well that was a fascinating um insight and you and your knowledge of and uh, friendship with uh, john cleese uh, but it's like doing a crossword with you trying to work out i now realize i should be really thinking through what what these things could possibly mean. What's the Birdlet Bypass going to mean? I wonder. <laughs> so, but the next one is optimism. So, so why, I, I know it's a fair question, why optimism? But obviously, obviously optimism is better than pessimism, I imagine. I don't want to ask any well, of that. Just tell me what your sixth wonder is optimism. Tell me about it. Well, I, I'd be I'd be fascinated in your view on this. I, I, one of the biggest lessons I've learned, I think, for, from life is when I spend time with people who are negative, looking at the, the the worst in life, I mean, nothing particularly wrong with that per se, but it's remarkable how over time it begins to bring my own mood down and to make me start thinking of all the things I can't do and to almost destroys any creative, any residual creativity that I have. When I spend a bit of time with people who are optimistic, who are talking about talking things up and looking at possibilities, it's remarkable how it shapes my mood. And I'm, I'm conscious that in, you know, in psychology, they talk about the, 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 the personality attributes and certain types of predisposition. Seems to me that this is massively influenced by the people with whom we're surrounded. But I also think that we have some control over who we decide to surround ourselves with. And maybe that's the most important thing of all in our friendship groups. It's not to say you should eliminate all negative people from your life. That 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 would be ridiculous. But I I do think you know, just just having a bit of insight into how that shapes the way one thinks about the world is is you know, which do you sort of share that, Clive? I recognise what you're saying. I applaud it, but I'm going to have to admit that I am not in my friendship groups, marriages, family, what not married marriage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am not the optimist in the group. I am always the ones as well. I'm not sure that's going to work. All right. Oh, that'll, 
that'll explode in our faces. Or, you know, in, if it's in a creative situation, or, yeah, well, we could do that, but that's been done before and doesn't work, or it won't work for that reason. I'm a script editor more than the inspired ideas man, I, I would probably think. Um, so I am a natural-born pessimist, I think. And uh, speaking up on behalf of pessimists, we, in the end, have a happier life. It's just strangely, because we always think everything's going to go wrong and we're delighted and pleased when things go right. Whereas the cheerful, the the puppy, you know, golden retriever <laughs> optimist that, that you evidently are, you're, you're always bumping into reality, think, oh, that's great. I can run over there. Oh, no, there's a fence in the way. You know, right. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? No, I, it's, it's just I do. Perverse logic. I think pe- pessimists are happier than optimists in the end. That's probably fair. I, I think uh, extreme optimism is clearly, yeah. is clearly not a good idea. But I am fascinated that you would often be the one objecting to particular ideas that couldn't work, been done before. You know, when when you did interviews on on Clive Anderson talks back, we, we I mean, presumably you had some idea of the shape of the interview. You said when you're cross examining people, when you asked a question, you wanted to be aware of what the answer probably would be, because that would enable you to follow up in a way that might knock them off their guard. And I think watching your interviewing on on TV. Yeah, you can sort of see that at work, but mapping it out, you, you would often mm. be doing that through a process not of this could work, but this isn't going to work. Well, I'm, I'm, um, you, you we're in danger of slipping into you interviewing me here, but no, what I was referring to is that it's a sort of a maxim in uh, court uh, that you can't actually always stick by. Never ask a question that that you don't know the answer to, or always know what the answer is going to be. Now you can't always stick with that because sometimes you have to ask a question and you fear what the answer may be, or you want to push an object, so you have to go ahead with that. Now, in you know, interviewing on television, on radio, in a podcast, uh, sometimes you know what the answer is, and you're just doing it as a uh, as a device to say, well, what is the sport that you played in your youth, Matthew? And of course, I know what you're going to say. And I'm ready to say, no, no, you're lying when you say <laughs> tennis and you're a champion of Wimbledon. I'm ready. But now, uh, what I'm more thinking of just uh, in more general terms, well, let's, right. let's, this project is coming up. Shall, I mean, in take even um, in my uh, scarcely glittering career, but I, I did a, a radio series called Whose Line Is It Anyway? And we put it quite quickly. It went on to television. I was the one saying, well, I'm not sure we should do television yet. Let's do five years of radio before we consider going to television. Wow. And had anyone listened to me, <laughs> we'd have never done it on television because the time would have gone. We had that opportunity. And then the opportunity to do a, a talk show, a chat show on television came along. And um, it's 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 in the in the sort of the family memory of that show is that it was only because I was an hour late for an hour meeting because I was held up in court because I was still being a barrister that uh, they agreed it was all set up that I do that series. And I turned up and I said, well, started to say, well, really, have we got... No, no, shut up, Clive. It's all being commissioned. And don't, don't. So I am... Um, I'm, not, I'm not always the, uh, the baddie, but I'm certainly not the optimist who says... Well, hey, this is this is going to be a triumph. So optimism, uh, and and has it sustained you through your life in the sense that you uh, you obviously found time to both be practicing table tennis, and you must have you must have been getting good A levels and uh, generally uh, a good academic career to get to Oxford. And I think I'm right in saying you've got a first class degree, which is no mean feat. So you must have been working hard there, in addition to playing table tennis to keep your your standard up. So um, is this just a tribute to your hard work in all these different directions, or are you just an optimist? I can do this. I can be a, 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 a sports champion, and I can get a you know a decent degree. 
I, well, it was it was tough to be honest. Uh, I, I um, because t- table t- I was playing for a team while at Oxford in Montpellier and then Bordeaux, so I was away a lot. I, you know, the Olympics, European Championships, World Cup. So I was probably in Oxford only a day and a half, two days a week. Uh, Are you allowed traveling. to do that? Aren't, aren't, isn't there a requirement to sleep? Uh, in within the in Cambridge, it's within the sound of St Mary's Church or something. For uh, I'm, I'm going to have your degree taken away from you at this rate. Yeah, you're if, right. If it turns out you weren't there long <laughs> enough. <laughs> no, you're right. You had to sleep for a certain number of days within term time, and the and I was you know less than a quarter of that. But yeah. I think either oh, I won't. You know, I'll redo I, I, the introduction. Uh, someone who would have been. <laughs> <laughs> would have had a first class degree from, yeah, and not been removed from a casual remark on a podcast. <laughs> it, it, interestingly, I, I, you know, at Oxford in PPE, you only had two tutorials a week, um, an hour each time, sometimes yeah. an hour and a half. So you didn't really need to, to, to be there. I think the tutors, if they did know, though, I don't think they were particularly bothered about it. But I definitely. Did you not have missed- lectures to go? Do you have lectures to go to, essays to write? Or not not PP. Like well, you had to write uh, uh, essays to then read out uh, at the tutorial, but the lectures were all voluntary, and I, I, you know, you could read the relevant content in books. So I, I would always take books. There were no Kindles then, you see. So my luggage for the for the tournaments I'd play in would be half full of the the books that I'd read in the evenings and and before breakfast in the morning I, I I was fine I didn't I didn't mind that at all but I definitely missed out on the Oxford experience I didn't go and visit other colleges or I went once to the union I I, I didn't make many close friends because I was hardly ever there but I am incredibly lucky to have been given a something that I I'm, I'm really looking forward to a, um, a visiting fellowship at All Souls starting uh, later, uh, starting next year, which will enable me to go back to an Oxford college and spend a year really studying hard on something, which, which I think I missed being in Oxford and 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 having that experience, and I'm I'm very excited about that. Well, that's very important. I mean, All Souls is the is the null plus ultra than of, uh, or whatever the expression is. Obviously, I'm not suited to, for All Souls. I mean, that that is only for very the 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 highest of the high, the creme de la creme, is All Souls. Yeah, I think that that that, that, that well, uh, it, well, it's very nice to be have been invited, but I think I think they probably have made an exception for me in some way, shape, or there's probably a table tennis table at the, near the dining hall, which the which the fellows are hoping to get some coaching uh, during the year. Well, why not? Why not? Uh, uh, yes, uh, healthy brain, he- healthy mind, healthy body, and <laughs> use the table for both both reading and uh, playing table tennis on. Um, all right. Uh, so optimism. Okay, that's a, it's a, a general concept, and I, 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 I'm one part of me agrees with you. Yes, optimism is good. Uh, it's, it's more of an admission uh, from me that I am not uh, that optimist. Uh, I am a, a pessimist, but that's I'm not advocating for pessimism, uh, other than the fact that uh, we're we're seldom, not so often, let down by life. Us pessimists. We come to your last wonder, and uh, you continue this run of slightly puzzling wonders. Uh, so tell tell us about this one. The Birdlip Pass, the Birdlip Pass. So th- this is this is the days of of, of table tennis, which is a, a an interesting and and idiosyncratic subculture with, within Britain. Howard Jacobson, the uh, the, the novelist, wrote, wrote a wonderful semi autobiographical novel called The Mighty Waltzer, where he talks about the Manchester Ping Pong League of the nineteen fifties, where he would play against the Allied Jam and Marmalade Factory and there'd be a table in the, the staff canteen and they'd play and the ball would fall down the stairs and part of the 
the the game was retrieving the ball from all these difficult places. Once you tran- once you get through the local league table tennis, you start playing in tournaments, and these tournaments would be an interesting far flung places where you'd meet the same players and the the same parents all battling to be the best in the country and there would be the cleveland select and you know one in leighton buzzard and the the one that i remember most vividly was was the cotswold junior select yes and we would wake up on a saturday morning at 6 a.m to get there in time for a 9 a.m first round match against bradley billington of chesterfield or michael o'driscoll of of murfield and um my mum uh, would drive. We, you know, we we didn't come from a particularly well-to-do background, but we we owned a, a, a mini metro, and that was uh, followed by a Nissan Samba, which which we got for five hundred pounds cheaper. But it had Side Brothers sponsored by Reading Garage across the side of this car, and we'd drive to the Cotswold Select. But we got there quicker because of the Birdlip Bypass, and my mother, my mother brilliant taxi driver as she was and and brilliant in inspirer she she alongside peter charters was was the reason for our table tennis success she would find these incredible routes to the before sat nav to get to these places and when i think of when i think of table tennis and and that 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 period in my life as a as a junior player the bird lip pass always comes into my mind um and uh, that, that's what I mentioned earlier, Clive. I went to to, to listen to Mozart yesterday. Is my mum singing in her in her choir? And I, you know, I live in London. This was in Binfield near Bracknell. Uh, it, it was on a Sunday night. It was a good hour and a half to get there. But I thought, you know what? She she wants me to go and listen. I, you know, I'm quite keen to go and listen. And she's driven me to so many different competitions. You know, me going to Newbold College in Binfield to listen to her singing Mozart Mozart's Requiem is the least I can do. Well, that's a rather touching uh, reason for including this bypass, but you, 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 you like to bring us to things tangentially. Um, so I, I think we're coming to your mother there um, more than anything, more than, uh, but also the memories of uh, table tennis playing. And I, I, I should have waited. I should have had more confidence than to leave my questions about table tennis to this, to this particular uh, wonder. But uh, who knew that Birdlip Pass was going to be all about your junior years as a as a table tennis player? Yeah, um, apologies. It, it, my, my wonders have been way too enigmatic. I now realise, and it means that you asking a question and knowing what the answer will be has been completely useless. <laughs> yeah, what a very good by, by skill, this technique. I, <laughs> um, I think I saw a stage version of Harold Harold uh, Jacobson's uh, mm. book uh, in Manchester, um, which was sort of more, more about his upbringing as well, uh, and table tennis it seemed to flower have a flowering in in his part of the world in his in his memory of it anyway um and it obviously flowered around your way because of this coach and um and the the numbers of you taking part so was that a particularly rival lot you know you from reading going down to Cotswold was that the equivalent of a, a derby match in in the table tennis world well, actually, the, the the tournaments people would come from all over the country to play in them. So it just so happened that the the the, the Cotswolds uh, select were, was in Gloucestershire, which it meant just that's where the, they staged them. Yeah, sorry, that's uh-huh. where they stayed. But the but the big rivalries were in local league table tennis. So the club that I played for, Omega, 
which was basically a prefab hut with one table and no lavatory. We we our big rivals were Son in Common, which was a slightly grander one table venue uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and and the rivalry, you would not believe. Well, you probably would believe how intense the competition was between two teams of three with no spectators at all and the obligation on the home team to provide a cup of tea after the seventh match uh, out of 10 and the the enmities and the and the and the friendships as well what sort of player were you i'm going to just one last question on table tennis were you, uh, were you an aggressive player defensive player a spinner of the ball a hard hitter well, so table tennis now is dominated by attacking players. I'd say 99 of the top 100 in the world. I was the lone defender. So I went a long, long way away from the table and mm. relied on on slice, backspin. Yes. Yeah. So is that, is that would that be more described as a defensive way of playing? As a, exactly. Uh, just prolonging the rallies or just bamboozling your opponent with the with the spin of your balls? Yes, exactly that, exactly that. Okay, well, look, uh, thank you very much, uh, Matthew, for joining us on, uh, or joining me on this uh, podcast. It was, uh, as I expected, a fascinating uh, journey through you and your life, though though the the route we took was at least as complicated as your mother's to get you to the Cotswold Cotswold Table Tennis Tournaments. Uh, It's hard to know. I have to pick the, the wonder of wonders that I want to... Uh, have have as your your top wonder, and it's quite hard to do that in this case because they're they're also um, you know Delphic in their meanings. So um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think uh, I think that to maintain the um, the high grade nature of much of your discourse, I think I'm going to have trust. I'm going to put trust as the wonder of the world because you made a, a very good case for its importance in economics and politics and perhaps philosophy as well, and the importance in human life as compared to um, uh, animal life. So uh, it's hard to say that rubber soul should uh, should overcome that, but I I was tempted. So I'm going to put trust. I'm going to put trust in, and and that'll be a um, a suitably erudite wonder to be against your name as your wonder of wonders. Thank you very much for for, for coming on today. Thank you, Clive. You enjoyed it. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.